Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it is officially 2020. Technically, I've already released episodes this month of January, but they were all kind of pre-recorded because I had my kids coming in. And so this is officially like my fresh, new, first recorded and edited episode of 2020. And I am super pumped for the future of Room 9 and everything that's happening in here and with us. So it's really cool, really exciting things are happening to really start this episode off. I just have to thank each and every one of you guys who listen to this because it has been truly an awesome year and it really didn't, at least monetarily, it hasn't been you know, something to write home about, but it's been super encouraging, all the support I have, and I was just kind of going through all my finances and I literally had over $3,500 of donations, which probably doesn't seem like a ton to a lot of people, but it's kind of awesome because... I really, honestly, I recorded two episodes out on pass in my rehab. So I'm just, this is young. I'm going on two years of sobriety. This thing is just keeping me so excited for life and so excited for living. And I'm just excited to share this with everybody and just how much growth is happening now from the grant to people just supporting us at Room 9. A couple of shout outs here for a lot of people who've supported me financially. If I forget your name, I apologize. It's just kind of off the top of my head, but... Kelly and the Thompsons and Natalie, my, my parents, my sister, Lisa, a lady I met through working at Save the Michaels. She's an awesome supporter. So many people from Save the Michaels who volunteer there have just been awesome to me. And, you know, Sydney and the CEO, associate CEO of Spectrum and Constantino, the CEO of Horizon Health, Regano, the CEO of Evergreen. Just so many awesome people supporting me and keeping me going. And of course, out of everybody, Christine, my extremely biggest support system, hands down. A lot of this would just never have been possible without her. And I'm so thankful to still have her involved in my life. And it was just awesome. So 2020 was great. I got $11,000 grant. I was featured in Podcast Business Journal. And just so many awesome things happened. And I'm super pumped to um, get 2020 going. So I have three words for 2020 that I'm just going to really live by, and that's content, discipline, and generate. I want to produce content consistently more often, and now that's including video content. More on that in a second. Discipline. I need Not that I haven't been disciplined because I've worked my ass off this past year, but it's been chaotic discipline. I've been all over the place, like doing this and then doing this, so I really want to get disciplined in my scheduling of how I work is a big one for this year and then also I just I obviously need to eat I need to pay bills and all of that jazz so I need to start producing a, more of a consistent income but other than that I am super pumped man I am super pumped I don't know about you guys but 2020s here it's a fresh start videography is happening now I'm starting this mini documentary little two and a half minute video thing with Evergreen Health. So I'm excited about that. I got my good buddy Dave Riffle on team, on board, helping out. So it's really awesome. You know, so you're going to start seeing a lot of uh, updates for the website and everything else. Things are changing. I'm a little bit behind. Had the kids in for 10 days, but I'm working my ass off to get caught up. But anyway, I'm just going to get into it. And this episode, I sit down with the district attorney of Erie County, John Flynn. And this kind of came as a surprise, this episode. I was originally just going to do it, actually, with the assistant DEA that was in my case, or I guess technically kind of 
could be called still in my case, even though it's kind of done with, but he was Steven Earnhardt and he was kind of almost ended up at the end of everything being my lawyer in a sense where he was just talking to the judge and saying how good I was doing. He was a big fan of my podcast. So he got this hooked up. So special shout out to Steven Earnhardt for, you know, getting this, getting that set up. That was really awesome of him. But yeah, this was, it was interesting sitting down with John Flynn. He's a really you know, down to earth dude. It was really kind of cool to break through the political shell and have a great conversation with him. Christine sits in and kind of co-hosts with me and you know, it was awesome. So I'm just going to kind of let the episode speak for itself. Check it out. Room9podcast.com. Get on our website, fill out contact forms. If you could help out with uh, the, the money, the donations that goes very far, anything helps, including even just sharing social medias and links and spreading the word, word of mouth. Tell people to check out this podcast. Tell people you love it. Tell people how much it helps and makes you feel connected because that's the whole point of it all. I think this is, I don't even know what episode this is. I should probably get it together. I kind of think it's episode 52, but it's weird because I don't count the episodes that I collaborate with treatment providers in this number. So technically, I think I have like 64 episodes out, but I think this is just with me kind of doing my thing and just strictly room nine. I believe it's episode 52, but anyway, it'll be on the uh, information stuff and all that. So room9podcast.com, check it out. Here is an episode with the district attorney of Erie County in Western New York, John Flynn. Enjoy, guys. John, well, thank you for uh, joining me. No problem, I did Sean. not know uh, it was going to be, originally I thought it was going to be Steve, your uh, assistant district attorney there. And then she emailed me. She's like, oh, just the FYI, you're going to be doing this with John Flynn. <laughs> so that was actually an awesome surprise. So, but thanks for, you know, I know you're busy. Oh, no problem at all. Obviously. It's and, my you pleasure. Know, I appreciate you sitting down with us. And then I have my co-host in life over here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also for this episode, Christine, who has been a... Uh, a big part and has been my number one supporter through all of this mess and journey, which I think is a huge piece to the puzzle of getting people back to, in quotes, normal, you know, society and yep. into life is the family and support. And I've been very blessed with that. So as I kind of told you coming into this, I really love it. This, my podcast to be an opportunity for people to kind of, you know, get to know the personalities of the people who are either have struggled personally with substance use and mental health or who have family members or who work to serve and help those people. And obviously you're one of those that really has been around as things have really gotten bad, especially with the opiate crisis and everything. And you have done a lot of things since you've been in office to really help that out. So I would love to touch base on a lot of that. But I guess really quick, kind of give me a rundown of I, if I'm not going to lie, I do not, I'm not very much well into politics. Okay. (laughs) So other than what I, the research I've done over the last few weeks on you, I don't know a ton about you, but kind of give me a rundown how you got into this position and what made you kind of want to be in the position. Well, I fortunately had the 
ability growing up as a child to see this office firsthand. My uncle, my mother's older brother, uh, was in fact the district attorney of Erie County back in the 70s. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah. Ed Cosgrove, who's uh, still alive today, uh, uh, my uncle Ed is a practicing attorney here in Buffalo. Uh, he was the district attorney and uh, from 1974 to 1982. And so I remember uh, working on his campaign when, in 1973 when he ran, just, you know, handing out flyers and doing stuff. I was uh, seven years old. And so I obviously, uh, at an early age, uh, got a taste of politics. Uh, I got a taste especially uh, of this office and the importance of this office and the power of this office. The power in the sense of what I believe politics should be about and what public service should be about, and that is helping your fellow man and woman. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's really what public service to me is all about, and and that's why I got involved in politics. And I, like I said, I recognized early on, uh, you know, even as a child, I, I recognized just by being at the, the dinner table and, and being at different family events uh, with my uncle, the power of this office and, and the ability of the person who was the district attorney to help people's lives. And so I obviously um, was interested in politics from a young age. My my father was also an attorney. You know, he he ran for office uh, for state Senate when I was like one or two years old, but then he, he never ran again and just maintained a law practice uh, throughout my childhood growing up. But I, I, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. I, I knew I wanted to get into politics someday from a very young age. Um, I, I went to college uh, where I studied political science. I didn't want to go in, 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 the, in the law school right away after college, so I, I took some time off and I, I went in the Navy. Uh, mm-hmm. I joined the Navy. I served uh, on a warship uh, out of San Diego, California for a number of years. And then I, I came back home to Buffalo, went to UB Law School, and I still stayed in the Navy in the reserves during law school. And then when I graduated law school, I went back in the Navy on active duty and uh, became a Navy lawyer. I did that for about five years uh, on active duty. I again then came back to Buffalo, got off active duty, uh, end up staying in reserves though, uh, almost uh, 15 more years where I uh, I did a, I did 28 years total in Navy. Awesome, awesome. Uh, you know, I, I retired uh, 2017 when I took over this job here, and uh, so that, that's always been a part of my public service. Obviously, my time in the Navy, I saw service members, uh, you know, uh, get caught up, you know, using drugs. Obviously, mm-hmm. in the military, you know, unfortunately. There's a totally different paradigm than there is in the civilian world. There's a zero tolerance policy uh, for for drugs in the military, uh, you know, as there probably should be, mm-hmm. um, you know, d- due to the nature of, of that business. So my time in the military and, and dealing with with drugs and, and criminal justice offenses, th- there really was no opportunity for second chances. There was no opportunity to get someone to help. It was unfortunately, you know, we got to kick you out of the military for national security purposes. So again, that I had that mindset obviously abided by those practices in the military. But when I got out and I got back into the civilian life, 
I realized that within the criminal justice system, and especially when it comes to, to drug use, that we can't have a zero tolerance policy. We, you know, we have to have a different policy. And I think I've incorporated that as my time as DA. When I got out of the military and, and, and for the second time and came back to Buffalo was 2001, it was kind of ironic how your life takes a certain path. I got off active duty and came back to Buffalo in June of 2001 which okay. was three months before 9-11. If I would have been on active duty on 9-11, I would have never got out. And I wouldn't be sitting here today probably. I, I would have been a career, I, I, would, I would have stayed in you know, for forever probably because I obviously wasn't going to get out at 9-11 if, mm -hmm. if I was on active duty then. As life has its uh, different paths for you, I, I was already out and uh, I was here in this office. I, um, I started in this office in 2001. Uh, I served for a number of years in this office, mainly as a homicide prosecutor. Okay. I then left the office, went into private practice. I wanted to maintain my commitment to public service. Uh, I stayed in the reserves the whole time, but I, I first ran for public office in 2003. I ran for uh, a town council in, in Tonawanda, where I live. In Tonawanda, all right. Tana, yeah, town of Tonawanda. I ran for the town board there, was elected as a councilman in 2003. Uh, served for a number of years there. And then there was an opening. The town judge in Tonawanda, who was Judge Caruso, he got appointed to the New York State Supreme Court in 2006. And so there was a vacancy now on the town bench in the town of Tonawanda. And I was appointed to that vacancy in 2006. I had to run for uh, that position in 2007. I was fortunate to win that election, and then I served as town judge up until 2010. So I served for four years as town judge in Tonawanda, and I was also a uh, appointed and acting Buffalo City Court judge as well in 2000. Why you're in Tonawanda? Yes, still? Okay. Um, because, uh, you know, town judges could serve as acting Buffalo City Court judges. So I was appointed that in, in 2007. So I had the unique perspective, and a lot of judges don't get this, especially judges on the lower level courts. You're either a Buffalo City Court judge or you're a town judge. Mm -hmm. I had the unique perspective and opportunity to be both. To be both. And I saw firsthand the ills criminally in the city and those in the suburbs. And then, you know, obviously they overlap, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, there there are obviously different crimes uh, and different constituencies in the, in, in the city than there are in the suburbs. And I had the, uh, like I said, I had the unique opportunity to be both a town judge and a city court judge where I was knee deep in obviously the criminal justice system there for uh, for four years as a judge. And then I left the bench. I became the town attorney in Tonawanda, which is um, involved everything from, you know, um, uh, labor law to employment law to personnel law to, to still criminal law work because I, I oversaw the town prosecutor who processed and handled the traffic matters in the town of Tonawanda. It was more of a, a general counsel, kind of overall general legal practitioner as being the town attorney for the town of Tonawanda. And I, I obviously maintained a, a law practice as well during this whole time. During the whole time. I could do both. And what year was this around? This, this was in 2010. 
Okay. Um, and and so what was the like the substance use looking like at that point? Because I feel like that's around the time where it, it really started up. to take off. It was yep. starting up. It was just percolating then. It really kicked into uh, high gear, unfortunately. That's a, that's a bad term to use. It's an accurate it's term, correct. unfortunately. Yep. It, it really kicked into high gear around 2013, 2014, 2015, which were my last three years as a town attorney in Tonawanda. I ran for district attorney in 2016. Okay. And that was the height uh, in 2016. Yep. And so I was uh, fortunately elected in 2016, and I took over on January 1st of 2017 right. as DA. And then once I became DA, then all my side jobs stopped. <laughs> I mean, at one point, I had five jobs at one point. <laughs> there, and around 2000, 2009 there, I had five jobs at one point. I was uh, teaching at Buff State. I was had a law practice. I was in the Navy Reserves. I was a town judge. And I was an acting Buffalo City Court judge, so <laughs> I had five jobs. I had five. I got five kids too, so I I had a job for each kid. For each kid. <laughs> <laughs> but, but 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 once I became the district attorney, then obviously I'm not allowed to practice law, practice law on the side. Mm-hmm. Not allowed to have any kind of side government jobs. So I would have been allowed to still serve in the Navy Reserves, but the chances of me having to be deployed. Uh, and getting recalled to active duty from the reserves. If that ever would have happened, then I would have had to give up my job as DA. I was going to ask. Yeah, so then you, you just get, have yeah. to kind of walk. I would away have had to from walk this. away from this. Okay. Um, because you know, if, if if you get recalled for a year, let's say in Afghanistan or Iraq, you know, they're not going to keep my job here waiting, waiting for me. For him. Um, yep. So you know, obviously I couldn't take that chance. But you know, I had 28 years in. You know, it was time to go. Uh, it was time to move on to a different thing. And so this is a obviously a full time job mm-hmm. uh, to, to say the least. Even though you know. I had the ability to, to juggle a lot of things. Um, I felt that the residents and the, and the citizens of Erie County deserved my 100% attention mm-hmm. and uh, my 110% commitment, and that's what I've given them since January 1st. Yeah, that's great. As I kind of stated before we you know started here, every, a lot of people have this idea of the DA are the bad people and they just want to lock people up. And I mean, if I'm, yeah, I can't lie. My, that was kind of always my kind of closed minded thinking in the beginning of my journey, you know, throughout all of this. And I really have, as I told you, those are usually the people who are trying to get over on somebody who are, you know, dealing with the legal system and trying to skip out on this and not doing what they're supposed to be doing that have that mindset. So I really have, as I shared with you, I really have enjoyed my experience with, you know, Steve Earnhardt and being the DA and he's on the other side of it. Yep. Watching, you know, kind of supposed to be against me with, I guess, for lack of a better term, but, you know, he's really has done a great job and my whole mindset has changed a lot too with, um, how everything works around here. And I think it's been an awesome experience thus far, if I had to go through it anyway. Well, yeah, there's always been this perception and, you know, a lot of DAs across the country have, uh, you know, quite frankly, they've been elected with this perception. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and that perception has been of being, you know, law and order, tough on crime. Quite frankly, in a lot of races, DAs races, and in a lot of communities across the country, that's what the voters want to hear. They want to hear that you are tough on crime that you're law and order, that you are going to lock away the bad guys. Uh, that is That has been a theme, you know, not just for DAs, but for sheriffs, mm-hmm. uh, quite frankly, uh, you know, who have to run for election. You know, m- most police chiefs and police commissioners across the country, you know, certainly here in New York State and here in Buffalo, you know, they're all appointed. 
all, all the police chiefs of the towns and villages here in Erie County, they are all appointed by the local government. Mm-hmm. The police commissioner here in Buffalo was appointed by the mayor. That's the way it is across the country as well. But sheriffs are not. Sheriffs are elected by the county residents. DAs are elected by, now again, across the country, it's not all counties, all right? Now, in, in New York, it's by county. It's by county in New York. In, okay. in, in a majority of the states, it's by county. But there are states in the country, like Florida, for example, where there are judicial districts. And the judicial district, a lot of times, encompasses more than one county. Mm-hmm. So there'll be multiple counties that are in a district and the DA runs in that district. Now, they're all elected, though. There's no DAs across the country who are appointed. Right? They're, they're all elected. And, and the same with sheriffs. There are no elect. There are no appointed sheriffs in the, in the country. They're all elected. So when you're a DA and when you're a sheriff, quite frankly, over the course of the last, you know, 200 years that we've had this country, it's behooved you to run on that platform of the law and order tough on yep. crime law and order and so listen here I, i'm not gonna lie to you all right there, there's obviously a certain component to that when i ran in 2016 you know mm-hmm. obviously i want to my number one goal as the da is to keep the streets safe i i want to keep the community safe all right, that, that's my number one goal. And so part of that goal, obviously, in order to keep the streets safe, I have to put the, the bad people in jail, all right? Because when bad people who are committing serious crimes, murder, rape, robbery, whatever, when they are in custody, they are off the streets. Not and therefore, those therefore the, the streets are safe, all right? I recognized, even when I was running, I recognized it when I was when I was in this office and I recognized it when I was a judge that keeping the streets safe, keeping the community safe does not automatically mean throwing everyone in jail. Mm-hmm. It's not an automatic equation there. All right. Yes, you have to put people who commit murder in jail and serious violent felons in jail. But in Erie County, there are approximately 30,000 cases that I handle a year, all right? And of those 30,000 cases, approximately 7,000 are felonies. 23,000 are misdemeanors. misdemeanors. Okay, yep. so so you so the overwhelming majority of my cases, 23,000 out of 30,000, all right? Overwhelming majority of my cases are low-level, nonviolent crimes that are misdemeanors. And so those cases, those individuals do not belong in jail. Okay. So if you're not going to put them in jail, then you got to figure out how to handle their case. Mm -hmm. I learned early on as a judge, and I've incorporated this as DA, that in order to keep them out of jail and to keep them from committing crimes in the future, We need to help them. Mm -hmm. We need to find ways to get them back on the right path in life. That's a major component of my job. And it's a component of my job that, again, you're right, the public really doesn't realize that. Mm -hmm. And the public doesn't have that perception. Now, I've I've tried to change that now in in three years. And doing stuff like this right here hopefully changes that perception 
Uh, but there is still that law and order, tough on crime, overall general perception that's out there that, you know, there's some validity to that, obviously. But obviously, I want the public to recognize and anyone who's listening to this podcast right now uh, recognize that that's not what the DEA is all about. It's not just about that. And I think substance use has really kind of shown that in a lot of cases that, I mean, just locking somebody up for having an issue with addiction or mental health is, you know, not doing anybody any good. And and to be honest, that kind of steers people away from really even changing. When they get locked up, they walk right back out. I've, I mean, when I was in jail, I, I experienced it. I seen it. People took off and ran. And it's just crazy how this the whole opiate crisis has really changed things and how we, how we look at things because that's a huge thing. And I have even, I've been working with a lot of treatment providers in Erie County. And I have found that, you know, a lot of even people I was in rehab with, those people just think treatment providers can do whatever they want. And there's just always a stigma that they have about providers or that they have about the law and the DA and how they, oh, we just want to lock people up. So I've kind of always felt that was a little bit of what I wanted to do is be that bridge of communication between people like where I was who are just in rehab and who are stuck and then that communication to the providers and Obviously, talking with people like you, it's a huge help because those are the people who listen to my podcast. Are a lot of our family members and a lot of people who have suffered through addiction issues. So I think it's huge, you know, to hear you say it and the words come out of your mouth, I think is a huge thing. As far as I looked at the numbers, the opiate crisis is not, you know, the opiate use is not slowing down too much. No, I mean, it's not. Uh, I think that you're, uh, well, you know, a couple of things. Uh, for, you know, first of all, I think what you're doing right now here is definitely building that bridge of communication. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about it. And I, I think you also made a very uh, astute comment there that the opioid crisis uh, has, uh, has changed the narrative. Mm-hmm. And that is an extremely, as I said, astute observation because- we as a society have had two major drug crises in the last 40 years that has touched our society. We had a heroin epidemic in this country back in the 70s that came out of the 60s movement. It started to percolate in the late 60s and then came to fruition in the early 70s. And we had a heroin problem in this country. Now, the problem was mainly in the inner cities. Mm-hmm. It was mainly in the urban centers of this country, and it mainly aff- affected the uh, African American population of our societies. And unfortunately, as a society, our answer back then was to lock them all up. Lock them all up, throw away the key. That was uh, the answer uh, of law enforcement and, quite frankly, of our society. Because again, Law enforcement is a reflection of society, mm. uh, and so that that was uh, that was our answer. Ten years later, we had another problem in this country. We had a crack cocaine problem that came to a head in the mid '80s, mm-hmm. and uh, was a problem for over a decade, going into the early '90s of this country. And again, that crack cocaine epidemic mainly affected uh, the inner cities of this country. It mainly affected African American communities of our inner cities in this country. And what was society's response to that? The same thing. Lock mm-hmm. them up. Now, unfortunately, the lock them up mentality, in my opinion, had some validity in the sense of a spinoff that we saw from the crack cocaine epidemic, which was the spinoff of that was the 
significant number of homicides that occurred in our society as a result of the crack cocaine epidemic. This was a time when you saw street gangs like the Bloods and the Crips come to their height of power Mm -hmm. back in the 80s and early 90s. And street gangs across the country, again, mainly in in the inner cities, were leading to a significant increase in the number of murders taking place throughout the country. And obviously, you have to lock up the murderers, okay? You have, to, you have to punish those who are committing the most dangerous crime of all, which is murder, all right? So, and I disagree with the, the initial lock every drug user up, mm-hmm. everyone who has, every, everyone found guilty of possession of crack cocaine, and lock all them up and throw away the key. I disagree with that, but I do agree with locking up those who committed murder because of this epidemic. You got to look at it from the whole spectrum here, okay? But from a societal spectrum, as far as the drug user is concerned, the the individual who got hooked on crack cocaine, just like those who got hooked on heroin 20 years earlier, society responded uh, with lock them all up. Now, like you said, when we hit the opioid crisis, uh, the, the high mark in 2015-2016, uh, fortunately, we as a society learned our lesson. Mm-hmm. And we as a society said that we can't lock them all up. We can't incarcerate our way out of this problem. We have to treat this as a public health crisis and not as a criminal justice crisis. And I commend society for that. I commend society for changing their perspectives on this and changing the way they view this. Now, there are some out there, and perhaps rightfully so, who take the position that, well, the only reason why we as a society have changed our tune on this is because the opioid crisis isn't affecting the inner city. The opioid crisis crisis hasn't affected the African-American community. The opioid crisis has affected the Caucasian male. And if you want to be cynical about it, uh, one could say that, well, it's awful convenient that society has now changed their tune here now and doesn't want to lock up the white man now and wants to help the white Caucasian male where they wanted to lock up the African-American male um, in the 70s and 80s. And you know what? I can't argue with that, quite frankly. My only comeback to that is to say, you know what? Um, I agree with that, with, with what we did in the 70s and 80s. And I say to people that we have to learn from our mistakes, that we all have to learn society. We have to learn from our mistakes. And we can't just say, well, you know what? We did this in the 70s and 80s, and to be fair, we got to lock up all the opioid users now, okay? You know, two two wrongs don't make a right. Mm-hmm. And so we have to learn from our mistakes, and we have to recognize our past failures, and we have to move forward. And fortunately now, though, we are definitely moving forward. And, and like you said earlier, we have totally changed the culture, and we've totally changed the mindset of how to deal with with this opioid crisis. Yeah, I think it's a, a huge problem and a huge step in society. I almost look at society as like one giant individual and just like individuals, you have to learn from your past. You have to learn from the mistakes you make. And as you, you know, you have to grow. 
and change the way you handle and deal with things. And I think that's a, a huge thing. And I think so much so that now I, there's not enough places for people to go into rehabs as quick as you'd like to get them in. And housing becomes an issue that we've changed our tune so much. It's almost, we have different problems now coming on. You know, how do we get into rehab? I mean, they're just so full and so many people are going in and out. And even keeping them on the more, you know, the clean side, one of the biggest things in the recovery world is the peer advocacy is coming up. And there's a lot of different things happening around helping people and keeping them from going back and from relapse. And and I don't know, like for you, how is the housing situation going and like as far as how you guys deal with somebody who has, say, been arrested with their because of an addiction issue and they're in jail and you want to get them in rehab. What does that what does that kind of process look like for you on this side of it? Well, you know, we are uh, very fortunate here in Erie County, quite frankly. I have, um, uh, you know, I've been the DA now for three years. I am uh, on the uh, executive committee, uh, a vice president of both the uh, state of New York District Attorneys Association and the National District Attorneys Association. And so I've been uh, all across the state and I've been all across the country and I have talked to numerous folks, DAs from, like I said, across the state and across the country who have it way worse than we do here in Erie County. As far as the criminal justice world here in, in Erie County and here in the city of Buffalo, the in all my travels across the, the state and across the country and, and talking to different people about this issue of rehab and beds for people, the biggest thing that we have done where I, I see this now up front and close is our opioid court. All right. We we here in Buffalo, New York, in Buffalo City Court, we established the first ever in the nation opioid court, not state nation in the nation in the nation. Yeah, I was dumbfounded when I read that. I was shocked by that. When I took office on January 1st, 2017, a gentleman by the name of Jeff Smith, who was the project coordinator of our diversion programs uh, for the Office of Court Administration here in uh, here in Western New York. He he had obviously seen the opioid epidemic reach its peak mm-hmm. in 2015 and 2016. Jeff and others in the community realized that we needed to think outside the box. We needed to do something dramatically different in the criminal justice world on how to deal with folks who were caught up in the system because of their opioid addiction. And so uh, Jeff applied for a grant in the fall of 2016 with the United States Department of Justice. And the grant was basically a pitch to the Department of Justice in DC to establish an opioid court, which would be different from our drug courts. Now, you know, Buffalo was one of the first cities in the country to also start a drug court. A drug court. Back in the back in the early '90s, other cities are gonna fight for the very first one. But I, I I'll give it Buffalo's to Buffalo's got it. I, well, no, <laughs> they, don't, they don't have the first drug court. I'll give it to Miami, Florida. From what I, from my research, Miami, Florida was the first city in the country to establish a drug court back in the early '90s. But Buffalo was in the top ten, you know, right there in the early '90s. So we, so we, we established a drug court. We've had a drug court here in, in Erie County now for you know over 20 years. The, the way that the drug court operates, though, here and across the country is that it's a sentencing court in the sense that you don't get in the drug court until your case is over, until you've been arrested, 
gone through the whole process, been either found guilty or pled guilty. By the time you get to that point, could be, be months bit, later, yeah. if not a year later in some cases, all right? And then you're about to be sentenced by the judge. And then you go into drug court at that point there. So what we were seeing here in Buffalo and in Erie County that you can attest to is that if three months goes by, if six months goes by, certainly if a year goes by, people were dying. Mm-hmm. People weren't making it that far. They were overdosing and they were dying. And so that's what we saw. Sean, we were seeing one or two deaths of individuals who were in our drug courts, our regular drug courts, one or two overdose deaths a week. That's crazy. A week. All right. Yeah, and, that's nuts. And we're like, all right, something's got to be done here. All right. So Jeff Smith put in this grant request to the Department of Justice. And his idea was let's establish an opioid court where we get people into that court right away, the day they're arrested. Not wait till they're sentenced a year later, but get them into Immediately. A, get them get into them a in. program, get mm-hmm. them into the, this overall court program right away and so the department of justice liked that idea and they gave us here in buffalo uh, almost three hundred thousand dollars for that grant. start that up awesome and so what we did then was initially you get back to your original question here initially was we started opioid court on may 1st 2017 when we started it we were on the day of arraignment the first court date we were getting individuals into inpatient facilities, getting them in the beds within 24 hours, at the most 48 hours, okay, right away. And fortunately, we had enough beds here in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Now, I can't say that about the rest of the country, okay? Uh, and I can't even say that when I talk to my colleagues across New York State. But fortunately, we in Buffalo had enough inpatient beds to put these people in right away. Now, we have changed that paradigm over the course of the past two and a half years. So, like I said, we started opioid court in May of 2017. Here we are in January 2020. Two and a half years have gone by. And, you know, we've learned, obviously, in two and a half years, and we've made halftime adjustments, okay? And now, we pretty much don't put anyone in inpatient facilities. Pretty much everyone in the opioid court now is in an outpatient facility, all right, of, of different kinds, okay? Mm-hmm. And so we obviously have people who go in for treatment, you know, for a couple of days here and there. They stay at home and they go to outpatient, mainly 100%. It's a combination. But fortunately, like I said, we here in Buffalo and Western New York, for whatever reason, seem to have a lot more open facilities than those across the country. Yeah, there's a lot around. There's a ton around. And I mean, I've worked with, let's see, Spectrum Health and Human Services, Horizons, another big supporter of mine, their CEO, uh, Evergreen right now. I'm starting a little mini documentary for them, which is cool. So there are tons of people. And really, with the exception of one company who I really won't even mention, I have not found too many companies around that are not doing this because they want to help. I mean, everybody's there. I've met very few people who are just collecting a paycheck. And it really kind of changes your perception on society and how people are. Because I think if you watch too much news and read too much of the newspaper, everything is kind of negative. And even with this this opiate crisis, you kind of see and hear a lot of negativity. But really, my experience and 
generally has just been people want to help and people well, you know don't want to walk over people. Yeah, I mean, I can testify to everything you're saying, John, from, I guess, the victim angle. Obviously, when everything first started with Sean, I did not assume it was heroin. I had no experience with it. My only perception was anyone that's doing heroin is living under a bridge. I didn't think they were like functioning humans. But coming from the victim perspective and not knowing how to navigate the court system or what was going to happen, after meeting with Steve and discussing with him, you know, the first time of, you know, my goal was rehabilitation. It was not punishment, which he appreciated coming for me. But he said, I have to take what you want to my boss, who is you. And he said, but I know that he's going to be open to taking the more rehabilitation approach than I wasn't looking for. I want him in jail or I want he needs help. And I can testify from my end that that's exactly what happened all the way through the process. Well, good. So. That, that, that's good to hear. And I, I, I totally agree, Sean, with, with a uh, a comment that you made there as far as, uh, you know, you, you recognize how many people do want to help. Mm-hmm. I, I tell people all the time uh, that there are way, way more good people in this world than there are bad people. Than you think. I mean, mm-hmm. even, even than bad people, okay? I mean, there, for every, every bad person out there, there are thousands of good people. Thousands, okay. I mean, the the numbers aren't even close. So yeah, what what you see on the news and what you see on TV, obviously, you know, th- listen here. The media, you know, has to make money. All right, they have to sell advertisement mm-hmm. rates. They okay, need viewers. You know, <laughs> they need viewers. Viewers don't want to see the individual who steals a candy bar from Walmart. All right, you know that <laughs> that, that, that that that's not no. sexy. The viewers want to see the homicides. You know, mm-hmm. and so that that's what gets played on the TV. All the bad stuff. But there are. Uh, you know, Christine, as you said, there are just in the court system every day, there are just hundreds of cases that don't get on TV, that don't get on the radio, get no media coverage at all, but where people are helping other people out. Mm-hmm. And I'll go back to the opioid court. When, when someone asks me, what is the greatest success story regarding the opioid court? in two and a half years that it's been in existence for, I don't blink an eye. I tell them just right away that when we were seeing one one or two a week of, in our drug courts dying, all right, of, of overdose deaths, when we started the opioid court in May of 2017, we didn't have our first overdose death until December. So awesome. we went seven months without one overdose death. And that was from one or two a week to Correct. seven months. Yep. Correct. And then since then, we've had a handful of overdose deaths. While obviously one is too many, our opioid court here in Buffalo that is now spreading across the state and across the country is literally saving lives. And uh, Christine, to me, there's, there's no more better way to help someone, to help a victim, to help society than in saving a life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's yeah extremely important. I mean, even she was the one who kind of called the cops on me too originally mm-hmm. about everything. And you know, when I would tell people that, they'd be they'd be like, oh, "Really? You know?" And you still talk with her? You're still with her? And I was like, "Yeah." I mean, that was this has been one of the this whole. I always kind of my first blog, one of my favorite blogs, I should say, I wrote is called "My Paradoxical Addiction," and I wrote it because it was it's very interesting to me how. I did these terrible, these messed up things. I stole from her kids. I stole my dead brother and sister's jewelry from my parents and pawned it and just to get drugs. And I've done all these messed up things, but I wouldn't be coming this incredibly awesome, 
man who is starting to love himself and have confidence in himself if it wasn't for these messed up things I did. And really to have that support there and just really be ready to help anyone when they're ready to change and be willing to help them is important. Situations like this can really change somebody's life for the better and have meaning if you allow them to. And I think yeah, that's huge. And I would say too, I mean, I'm a very forgiving, caring person, but I would say that was my view of the criminal justice system as well. When Steve and I first sat down, I explained right from the get-go, my intent in involving law enforcement was not punishment. I don't automatically view law enforcement as punishment. I view them there with me as a teacher, as a public servant, helping the public. And I had said, I, I didn't call the cops for punishment. I called to get help. And that's what I'm looking for the district attorney's office and all of this is to get Sean help because I know he's an incredible person. You know, and he even said to me, he goes, I just have to tell you, he said, I was looking through Sean's file and kind of thinking the same angle myself. And he's like, it's kind of a breath of fresh air to sit down with you and hear you. He goes, because a lot of the people that we deal with <laughs> may not have that same perspective, like they're out to get something. But I will say the rehabilitation and using the district attorney's office for help was exactly what happened. It wasn't a punitive, you know, it was walking, mm -hmm. stopping, and everything was explained along the way, like this is going to happen. And I would say, and that comes from you, top down, to everyone that works for you. But that was my absolute experience was ultimately getting Sean the help. I knew at the time because of everything that happened, he didn't have the money for it. I mean, everything, the court's and the whole district attorney's office helped in that entire process. Well, it's good to hear, and I'm glad. I'm glad I. Uh, I'm, I'm glad he told me that because uh, I obviously can't look at every case in this office. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I have, uh, like I said before, where you have almost thirty thousand cases a year here. I have ninety lawyers who work for me, and so I obviously what happens every day in Buffalo City Court for the 23,000 misdemeanors that are in Buffalo City Court and in all the town and village courts throughout this county which are over 30, I, quite frankly, you know, can't micromanage all that. I don't know what's going on, really. <laughs> I, mean, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I, I know about the big cases, obviously. I know about the ones that are brought to my attention when something gets messed up. But the hundreds of cases that occur every day, I've got to trust my lawyers to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. and, and I have to delegate that authority and that power because it's simply unmanageable. It's not realistic for me to know what happens in every case. Mm -hmm. um, and so when, when I when I hear that my assistant DAs are practicing, you know, what I'm preaching, that's good to hear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, that definitely they is. Are. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty uh, thankful for that myself because I'm trying to think what I could have been sitting uh, upstate yeah, for a handful of years. So that was kind of a kind of a good thing. Well, you know, you know, and and also though, you know, while I recognize that kind of both points that that you both made that you know sometimes you have to reach rock rock bottom before you can bounce back, mm -hmm. and I recognize that and I, I appreciate that, uh, but. I don't view the criminal justice system as an automatic rehabilitation entity, meaning that I don't think that, I don't believe in the concept that, you know what, in order to make this person see all the bad things they've done in the past and to really recognize all the mistakes that they've made, that a couple of days or a couple of weeks in jail may spark them 
back to life that that may teach them a lesson mm-hmm. all right i don't think that that's the answer either all right i mean i i think that you can avoid jail uh i think that if you and, and the opioid court is a perfect example of this uh and so is drug court in general. Because again, again, drug court is, you know, like I said it before, it's a sentencing court. But instead of being sentenced to jail, you're being sentenced to drug court, okay? Mm-hmm. And you're not going to jail. So we obviously, in the criminal justice world, recognize that jail is not the only answer. And so I don't think, personally, that just putting someone in jail to wake them up, uh, to have them recognize the mistakes they've made, you know, is the answer. Oh, um, I don't think it yeah. were. I think I'm really a rare case because yeah. I've seen a lot of people who don't get anything from being in jail. I mean, there's nothing there. I think I needed that time alone, uh, you know, most of the day spent alone to really make the decisions I needed to make. But I mean, no, I don't think that's the answer either for everybody. And I think it goes back to really the problem of every individual is so different and how you get them to change their ways is really not even up to you. It's more of you you can just always be there willing you can, yeah, present to guide the opportunity, them. Opportunity, but yeah. ultimately, you know, it would have been up to you. You know, I mean, I could mm-hmm. do on my end of saying he needs help, but if you didn't want it, no, there's only I so mean, much that yeah. can happen. And, 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 and not everyone uh, is, a, is, is like you from, from the victim standpoint in the sense that, you know, like Steve told you, my, my assistant DA told you, uh, you know, not every victim comes to the table with that mentality. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of victims come to the table. You know, again, I think that a lot of loved ones who are victims initially come to the table with, you know, I want to help this person. Uh, but quite frankly, a lot of them, after time has gone by and, and the person's not changing, give They're up. They're done. Yeah. Do- are done. Um, now, th- those who are not loved ones, like, you know, take a business, for example, all right? I-, I won't name any businesses, but I mean, you know, just take a generic business who has an individual who has come in and, and, and robbed their store and has repeatedly been a nuisance in their store in order to feed their drug habit, you know, in order to feed themselves sometimes by stealing food uh, just to survive because they're out in the streets and they're living on the streets because of a drug habit. You know, obviously, they sometimes come to the table with the mindset of, you know, I want this person punished. And I, I, I get that. So, you know, we have to somehow have a conversation with them uh, and, you know, it may not be a business. It may, it, it may be, you know, a random owner of a vehicle where uh, an individual who is trying to feed their drug habit sees a cell phone in a car and smashes a car window and grabs a cell phone and sells a cell phone. And now they've caused, you know, significant damage to someone's vehicle, over $1,000 now of uh, criminal mischief, now, now a felony. And, um, you know, the person whose car that is obviously wants justice. They're, they're, they're mad because their car got smashed into um, and their cell phone got taken. And, I get that. I, I totally understand that. Sometimes, though, you know, my office has to have a conversation with that person and say, listen here, the individual who did that is not a criminal, all right? They are an individual who has an opioid problem, who was addicted to drugs. And, you know, the, they, they got addicted to drugs through non-criminal means in, in the sense that, you know, Sean, as you know, from, from seeing people in, and, and working with people in this, in this field, a tremendous amount of individuals who got addicted to opioids got their first opioid legally. 
Mm-hmm. They got it legally from a doctor, all right, or from a healthcare provider who gave him morphine or gave him uh, hydrocodone, okay, or, or oxycotton, okay, some pain pill after a car accident, after a high school football injury, some everyday normal life occurrence that we all are a part of, okay, and they got their first opioid legally. And for whatever reason, it's spun out of control, and now they've become a criminal. But they're not criminals, okay? They're not criminals. And so I've had, had you know, my, my lawyers have had to have that conversation with a lot of people. And like you said, it, it's a difficult conversation mm-hmm. to have. And, and some some victims don't want to hear that conversation. But, mm-hmm. you know, you, you have to have that conversation. You know, at the end of the day, I, while I obviously represent the victim while i obviously care what my victims think the victim isn't my client okay my client is the state of new york Mm. my client is society Mm -hmm. and they are my client okay on a criminal case it's not joe smith versus jim jones okay it's the people of the state of new york versus jim jones i represent the people of the state of new york now i recognize that the victim is a resident of the state of New York, okay? I recognize that you're a Mm -hmm. resident of the state of New York, okay? I recognize that, you know, you are part of society, all right? So I'm not oblivious of that. Um, But the victim isn't individually, per se, my client. So sometimes I got to override a victim and do what's best for society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is is awesome to hear. I think a lot of that kind of scared me with my closed-mindedness coming in the beginning of this was like, she has really no say officially in, you know, what happens to me. And I think that was kind of Well, that was a big explained to me too, you yeah. know. I, I put forth what I would like to see happen, but I was very clear on the fact that it wasn't my, de- like I wasn't deciding or making any decisions along that end. But I would think that would be a tough sell to a lot of victims of they're not a criminal. I, I would think that would be tough in a lot of cases to sell. Yeah, it is. It, it is tough to sell. But sit here, as long as my attorneys, and I have, you know, numerous victim advocates who work in the office who are not attorneys, you know, who are, you know, basically social workers uh, yeah. who, who work in the office as well, you know, who, who have the, the, the training, you know, and the expertise to, to sit down and to talk to victims and just explain to them, you know, just what, how it was explained to you and mm-hmm. what, what the process here is and what we're trying to do here. And yeah, you said, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I obviously care very much what the victim thinks. I obviously care very much what the victim says. And, you know, the victim's recommendations go a long way with me. Um, so it's just finding that balance. It's obviously reviewing every case on a case-by-case basis. This is not a one cookie cutter fits all, okay? We got a we got a lot of different Christmas cookies here, okay? We got a lot we got <laughs> we got Christmas trees, we got wreaths, you know, we got a lot of different a lot of different cutouts here, okay? Um, I'm, I'm a big Christmas cookie fan. We got a lot of different cutouts here, okay? And so, um, you know, not one size does not fit all and those conversations with victims and the decisions on each case are going to vary depending on the facts of each case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the uh, the Christmas cookies there. <laughs> but I think, it, you know, it goes back, though, to every 
every individual is so different how you deal with them and there and if there was this cookie cutter answer there well there wouldn't be no crime <laughs> there wouldn't be addiction there wouldn't be no problems and unfortunately things are not that black and white but i guess kind of the the wrap things up i one question i didn't want to well, I guess it's a two-part question. You know, what are some things where the state and the DA have come along with addiction, like where they have grown? And where do you kind of see some parts that you guys need to get better at? Well, I think that we need to uh, get better at, from a law enforcement standpoint, the opioid, the drugs that back in the day when you were using, all right, and what individuals now are getting on the streets every day, they're coming from somewhere, all right? Mm-hmm. They're, not, they, they're not just falling out of the sky, all right? They're coming from somewhere, and th- there's always a supply and demand paradigm here when you're talking about criminal justice and, drug, and drugs, all right? Do you focus on the supply do you focus on the demand and, and how do you use your resources? And we only have limited resources, mm-hmm. obviously. You know, you, you got to do both, but we we obviously uh, need to improve our coordination efforts with law enforcement all across the country on stopping the flow of opioids into the country. Now, again, I think that we've done a good job in the sense that I think that we have gotten the message out to the medical community that you can't just keep prescribing these pills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think we've improved on that. But, you know, from a, a law enforcement standpoint, we obviously are seeing, you know, fentanyl come in this country in droves. You know, fentanyl is mainly, um, it, it's a synthetic drug. It's not a natural drug. It doesn't grow out of the ground like, like the poppy does from heroin, all mm-hmm. right, or the cocaine does from the plant, coca plant, okay, or even marijuana does in the marijuana plant. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a natural product that comes from the soil, all right? Fentanyl is a synthetic mm-hmm. um, that, that's mainly made in China and in different parts of uh, the Far East uh, that is now coming into the country um, through, um, uh, you know, mainly through Mexico and f- from here, from Buffalo, from from Canada. And so, you know, we need, to, law enforcement need to, to do a better job and stop it coming in. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the pure heroin, heroin in and of itself, um, you know, is, uh, you know, coming in through Mexico and coming in through, you know, South America, you know, uh, you know, mainly through, uh, you know, in, into uh, the country in the Southwest and, and coming through Florida, uh, again, also up north here through Canada. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, you know, we've done a great job here in Western New York where all of our law enforcement partners are together, working together to stop the flow of illegal drugs coming in the country. And so that that's always a challenge each and every day. And we gotta we gotta continue that. On the demand side, we, you know, which is the user side of, of the equation, you know, we just have to be vigilant. We have to keep putting people in diversion programs putting people in drug courts, putting people in opioid court, and getting people the help that they need. Just because we've had great numbers and great success in our opioid court, you know, we can't rest on our success, mm-hmm. all right? We, we, you know, we have to keep going. I mean, you know, we, um, you know I hate to uh, even mention my hated uh, or the hated uh, New England Patriots, okay? But they, <laughs> they, when they win a Super Bowl, they try to win one next year, okay? You know, you don't stop at one Super Bowl. You keep going to win more and more Super Bowls. And so we need to keep going and we need to keep winning. 
We need to keep our success going in opioid court. We need to keep our success going in drug court. Yes, we've seen the number of overdoses go down, you know, pretty dramatically in the course of the past three or four years here, all right, Mm -hmm. since our peak in 2006. But there's still too many. Uh, We haven't turned the corner yet. We're not done yet. We can't quit the fight now. We got to keep the fight going. We got to be vigilant and we got to do everything that we can to, again, get people the help that they need, the ones who deserve help, to give people a second, third, fourth, whatever chance to get help on one hand. But on the other hand, put those who are selling this, who are peddling this poison to our citizens, put them in jail. And as I said at the beginning, okay, it said at the beginning of this podcast, you can do both. And don't let anyone tell you you can't do both. No, no, I agree. And mm-hmm. I think it's... um. It's awesome, yeah, to be here and have a conversation with you and to hear that. And I think when you said that we have to keep learning as we go and growing from our mistakes and looking in the past and how can we change things, how can we do things differently, how can we do it better? And I think that's the key to really, obviously, anything in life. Agreed. So I don't know. Do you have any other no, comments, no, questions? No, this is great. Yeah, John, I appreciate you. Um, well, thank you yeah, very much. Sitting down. Um, to kind of make it a little chilled loud here, you know, what's... Uh, you already mentioned the Patriots are your favorite football team. What's oh, your, nah. your, uh, yeah. your I, I, favorite I, color, favorite I, I, food I, I, there? I'm, 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 I'm hoping that the Patriots lose on Sunday because the, o- the only the only way that the Bills can have a home playoff game. So I mean, I mean, I mean, people. I'm not sure people realize this, but the, there is a chance for the Bills to have a home, a home playoff, playoff game, game because. But the only way that happens is that if uh, Tennessee, who plays New England this week. Tennessee has to win two games, and we have to win two games to have the AFC Championship game here in Buffalo. So I'm hoping that uh, that that Tennessee beats uh, beats the Patriots. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, no, I'm a I'm a I'm a huge football fan. I'm a I'm a huge Bills fan. Obviously, um, my favorite color is green, um, <laughs> and, and my and my favorite thing to drink is green tea. Oh, oh, that's perfect. Which I'm having perfect. some. Which I'm having yeah. some here right now. This podcast. We are huge T fans over here as well. So, all right, John. Thank you again very much. Thanks, I appreciate Sean, thank it. You. Yep. Yep. Bye. Thank you. All righty. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode. You know what you should do is, if you did enjoy it, like, comment, and share about it on social media because that would be awesome. But I thought it ended up being pretty cool and a pretty relaxed conversation. And it was, again, unexpected. I didn't think it was even happening. And a few days before, they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, you're sitting down with John Flynn. So that was cool. Anyway, I will be talking to you guys next week. Look for more. I'm going back to Mondays. I tried to get away from maybe doing random days, but it's just Mondays from now on again. Every Monday, new episode. We're back on that because the other way did not work. You live, you learn. And that's what life's all about. So much love, and I will be talking to you guys soon. Peace.